Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Wow, what a worship time today. Man. Um, I just want to maybe point out that last night was one of the best healing services we've ever had. And I believe, thank you, yeah. I believe if you just watch it on, online, healing will take place. Yeah, we, Lisa and I were watching this morning, and there were words that the Lord was giving as the worship was taking place. And some of those words, I guess they were for me too. And uh, it was powerful. It was very powerful. So if you have a chance and you, haven't, you weren't here last night, just, just go back and listen to it. <laughs> Some of us are listening to it again because there's just so many things the Lord packed into that night. Now, we are coming to the end of our study of Jeremiah. This is our last one. I was actually only supposed to do eight, but I'm in charge, so I can do as many as I want. <laughs> but here's the thing. When Lisa was diagnosed with cancer and we went through all the the blessings of her surgery and, and and her recovery I wrestled with the Lord I said what does a life of faith look like when such things can happen to people you love so much how do I how do I sustain everything that I need to sustain while taking care of her and doing the other things that are happening in life and he took me to Jeremiah. And so everything that I've shared with you is really my own wrestling with how do you go deep enough in your faith that you can soar high when life is tough, when it doesn't go the way you want it to go. So we come to the end of the book, and the book doesn't end well. Okay? It ends very difficultly. <laughs> Here's what happens. Jeremiah... The only one who really ever affirmed him, the only one who honored him, was actually a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar made him a retirement offer. He said, if you'll come to Babylon, we'll set you up. You'll, have, you'll be uh, in the favor of the king. We'll make sure you have a place to live, food to eat. You'll be watched over. You'll be listened to. You'll be honored. But Jeremiah said, the Lord didn't tell me to go to Babylon. The Lord told me to stay in Jerusalem. Now, you remember, Jerusalem is in ruins. The walls are nothing but stone and rubble. The temple is destroyed. The nobles' houses have all been burned to the ground. There's nothing but rubble everywhere. There's not, nece- there's not even necessarily enough food. There's not protection. There's not safety. And yet Jeremiah says, the Lord called me here. This is where I will be. So it didn't... <laughs> It didn't, from his step of faith, make the chaos less chaotic. As a matter of fact, the Babylonians place a man by the name of Gedaliah as governor over Judah. Gedaliah is kind of a political novice, a little naive. People don't like him. They come to him and say, there's a plot against your life. He kind of just laughs it off, has a big feast. And this man who was part of the royal household of the kings of Judah came. His name was Ishmael, which is an interesting name. 
His name is Ishmael, and he comes and he kills Gedaliah, the governor. He brings his military men into a feast in front of all these guests and assassinates the governor. Well, this creates incredible insecurity in Jerusalem because now what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar going to come back and kill us all. So a man by the name of Johanan, who also had royal roots, takes his little bit, there are only these little remnants of military uh, men around, he takes his little remnants and finds Ishmael, kills Ishmael's men, but Ishmael escapes and goes and lives with, with another tribe outside of Judah. And then Johanan is now over, like he's in a sense the military leader, but he's also the leader of this refugee group in Jerusalem. And he is way over his head. So he comes to Jeremiah. The only good thing that Johanan ever does is he comes to Jeremiah and he says, what does the Lord have for me? Will you pray for me? Will you hear from the Lord for me? Jeremiah takes this so seriously, but at the same time he says, you know, Jeremiah's in his 60s by this time. And he looks at Johanna and says, no one else has listened to me. What makes me think you will listen to me? Will you swear that you will obey everything that the Lord tells you? Oh, yes, we swear. We promise. So Jeremiah goes into a deep, intense prayer time for 10 days. And he comes back, and God gives him six promises if Johanan and the people will stay in Jerusalem and rebuild the city. But he gives them seven curses, basically, if they choose another way. Guess what they do? So let's read a little bit. Now, what I've done is I've taken chapters 42, 43, and 44, and I've summarized them into just kind of Little, little pieces of it that will give you the feeling of what's going on here. And this is actually the message. So I wanted you to hear it in kind of a, uh, I, I find the language very blunt here, and I think is what we need. Now, there's some names in here. We'll just go, mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, we'll speak in tongues. So, uh, All right, you ready? Would you read with me? I like it when you read with me, so let's do this. If what's left of Judah is headed down that road, then listen to God's message. This is what God of the angel army says. If you have determined to go to Egypt and make that your home, then the very wars you fear will catch up with you in Egypt and the starvation you dread will track you down in Egypt, you'll die there. Johanan, son of Keria, and the army officers and the people along with them wouldn't listen to God's message that they stay in the land of Judah and live there. Johanan, son of Keria, and the army officers gathered up everyone who was left from Judah who had come back after being scattered all over the place, the men, women, and children, the king's daughters, all the people that Nebuchadnezzar, the (laughs) captain of the bodyguard, had left in the care of Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and last but not least, Neriah. They entered the land of Egypt in total disobedience of God's message, 
and arrived at the city of Tapanis. So this is what the God of angel armies decrees. Watch out. I've decided to bring doom on you and get rid of everyone connected with Judah. I'm going to take what's left of Judah, those who have decided to go to Egypt and live there, and finish them off. In Egypt, they will either be killed or starved to death. The same fate will fall upon both the obscure and the important. Regardless of their status, they will either be killed or starved. You'll end up cursed, reviled, ridiculed, and mocked. Happy ending. <laughs> Not, right? So let's think about this a little bit together. In the book of Jeremiah, the idea that's throughout the scriptures, really, and especially in Jesus' teaching about union with him, is that the only way that you really have excellence in life, or that your life is an excellent life, is when you live a life of faith. There's no other way. And, and living a life of faith really means being more interested in God than in yourself. It almost never has anything to do with comfort or esteem, or achievement. These are, these are really hard sayings that we have just read, but I want you to understand something about Scripture, about truth, about God's will. And basically, it really is this, that there are some people, when they read the Scriptures, they read the Scriptures without learning to listen to God. If you're not listening to God when you read the scriptures, then the scripture itself is sabotaged and will not work in your life. It is not a dead orthodoxy. It's a living letter. Yes. The same is true of many people who just want to hear from God, but don't want to listen to scripture. In both cases, something happens in order to sabotage the work of God and the will of God working out in your life. You need both. You need to hear God from the scriptures, but you also need to hear God in the scriptures. You need it to be living. You need it to be something that you're not just studying, but you're actually responding to. Why is that so important? Now, I'm going to push you a little bit because I want you to think a little bigger today. Okay? Besides being the Word of God, what gives Scripture its place in the universe, what makes Scripture relevant is that it shows no interest in being relevant. See, the reality is Scripture always stands above and it stands outside of our popular culture, our politics, our ideas, our feelings, our ways of thinking. And the Scripture always affirms in every generation what is truly good. What is always right, what is ever beautiful and true, and when we get that into our thinking and our living, it'll confront the things that are not beautiful, true, and right. Here, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Though the Bible is something you can put in your hand, all alone, just, just thinking those words are just words will never transform your life but to realize that they represent a truth that is outside of our realm, outside of our reality that we begin to hold on to because, you see, you cannot anchor yourself in this world. 
To be anchored into circumstances or situations or to begin to hope that things will turn out the way you want or imagine them to is to lead you to disaster. But there exist things from another realm. I know it sounds a little weird in a sense, but the truth is everything in the Christian life is not rooted here but in heaven. It's, it is rooted in the throne of God. It is rooted in the heart of God because that's where his word comes from. Jesus himself is actually called the word of God. So the word of God written is a reflection and, a, and it's the inspiration and it's the word of God himself. So you could, you could burn every Bible in the, word, in the world and the word would remain. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means you always have a choice whether you're going to live by faith or not. See, faith always <laughs> seems, at least, always involves risk. But here's what the risk is. Will I trust the unseen more than the seen? Will I trust the not yet of your God-promised future, my God-promised future, as though it is even when it's not yet? Well, I believe his promised future, his yes and amen, his promises that are drawing from his reality of your future into your present. Will I trust that or will I only trust what I see, what I can manipulate, what I can control? Because as long as it's about what you can see, manipulate, control, it is always uncertain. It is always insecure. See, biblical hope is actually a generator of great power. Biblical hope is the power source of an overcoming kind of faith. So I told you the word, in a sense, is beyond just, you know, this reality. It's the truth that comes from heaven. Well, hope is beyond this reality as well. Now, many of us, what happens is we put our hope in what we think we can anticipate. But what we usually are doing is putting assumptions and false expectations on how the world should be, how people should treat us, and how things should turn out. Biblical hope is never a hope in uncertainty that I wish would become certain. Biblical hope is always the certainty that God has spoken into your future. And it is when you begin to grasp those certainties and you live in the uncertainty of life with the certainties of your future with God. God God's word is already a reality. His promises are already a reality, but they are activated by your faith. And your faith becomes an expectancy, which becomes the certainty of your hope in your life. But also joy. See, joy, joy that is really biblical joy is not a circumstantial happiness. It is very possible for anybody to experience a circumstantial happiness. And a lot of things that give us pleasure actually also give us guilt, give us a sense of shame. They may give momentary pleasure, but the, the, the result after a while can be rather devastating. As a matter of fact, you eat enough Haagen-Dazs, you'll be happy. <laughs> but you'll get fat. I mean, you drink enough alcohol, you'll be happy, but you'll be drunk. Because a little bit, you know, you start saying, well, a little more won't hurt. There are things that you can do. 
illicit sex can create a tremendous feeling of happiness, but strangely enough, always leaves regret and guilt. We're talking about joy. We're talking about a joy that can sustain you even though you're grieving the losses of this life. We're talking about a joy that can overcome in the moments when you feel the weakest because you begin to realize what the scripture says is true, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. So this cannot simply be happiness produced by something you're, you're finding pleasure in or excitement about or whatever it means. It has to be a joy that comes from another realm. Here's the real joy of every Christian, of every believer. The Father delights in the Son. The Son delights in the Father. The Father takes you and the Son takes you and puts you right in the middle and says, all our delight in each other we have in you. So there's a river that's flowing from the joy of the Father and Son that comes by the Holy Spirit, and you're its destination. You're the destination of the joy of the Lord. But it's only activated by faith. You see, because it's coming from heaven. It's coming from the Trinity. It can't be produced by you. It can't be faked by you. It has to be received by you. Are you hearing me? See, hope sustains you with certainty even when the world is chaotic. Joy gives you strength even when you're grieving. And if you say to me, well, I, don't, I, I only think I should be happy when I deserve it. You'll never deserve it. Have any of you ever had that kind of thing on you? My wife's family was this. You can, you can play and have fun when all the work is done. Have you noticed as an adult, the work is never done? <laughs> so here's the thing. This is a world that steals joy. So there has to be in you a realization that I need a joy that's not connected or anchored in this earth, but that's connected and anchored in the joy the Father has in the Son, in the Trinity, but also in the river that flows from the throne of God, which is the completeness of the joy of the Lord in you. And the only thing blocking it is you. So it's only for people who realize, I don't have enough joy. Plus, it's not something you earn, it's something you receive. Because you see, Jesus was treated the way you deserve. So that now he wants you to be treated the way he deserves. And he deserves joy. So he wants you to have the joy he deserves. Think about it with me. In the midst of exile, in the midst of being people who were taken to a place they didn't want to go to, who had to live their lives with people they didn't want to be with, hopefully that's not you this morning. <laughs> he said to them, I'm going to show you if you'll stay. 
if you'll lean in, if you'll listen, I'm going to show you great things. And I'm going to show the hidden things that will only come to those who slow down enough their brains, their anxiety, you know, they're running ahead of me, who will listen to the, to the deep things of God. I've got hidden things for you. I've got hidden things that you'll only know if you give me access. And you see, the deep things always have joy. They always have deeper and deeper levels of joy and hope because they're certain things. You see, in Christ, your future is as certain as Christ's future. That's why he says, I'll give you a future and a hope that no one can take away from me. Because if you're in Christ, your future is Christ. But you say to me, oh, I don't know if I deserve. Well, look, here's what the Lord says. Is anything too hard for me? I mean, at some point in your soul, it isn't about, is it too hard for you? It is. But your soul has to activate that, that faith muscle that says, it may be too hard for me, but it's not too hard for you. All right, so I want you to look at your neighbor, okay? We're going to make these truths come out of your righteous mouths right now. All right, look at your neighbor. I want you to say, I want you to, you speak for God like you're Jeremiah talking to your neighbor. All right, ready? God says, God says I will show you, show you great, great and hidden things. And hidden things. Will, you Will you listen? All right, stay with me. Come on. Now God speaks to your neighbor again. One more time. Come on. God says to you, friend, is anything too hard for me? Now you look at your neighbor and say this, is anything too hard for God? Now one more thing with your most righteous look, all right? Ready? Look at him and look at him with all your heart and say this. God promises you a future and a hope. Come on, say that one more time. God promises you a future and a hope. Look, your faith doesn't make this true. It's true. It exists outside of you. It exists outside of this reality you and I live in. This reality cannot change the truth of that. But your faith can take it from where it is and bring it home. Are you tracking with me on that? Well, here's the problem. The people of God heard the same thing you heard. That was Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 33, both, all three of those promises. And you know what they did? They chose not to live by faith. Why? What did they do? Well, they said Jerusalem's too tough. Jerusalem is too hard. So they went to Egypt, and they even forced Jeremiah to go with them. They made him go. These were military people. They forced him to go. 
Here's the thing that, that the contrast you see in Jeremiah's life and Egypt. In Jeremiah's life, you start to realize that faith has to be intensely personal. Right. Not only, you know, the idea of faith in God. I believe in God sometimes, people will say. Tomorrow, even they'll say I'm spiritual. The Bible is really clear. Faith has to be in Jesus, and it has to be personal. Amen. See, Egypt is a perfect picture of religion. And a secular kind of religion, because their religion was incredibly bureaucratic. In other words, everybody knew what they were supposed to do. But it was tremendously impersonal. Egypt represented everything Jeremiah abhorred. But why is it we're so drawn to Egypt? Well, I would like for you to think about this. What happens when you get tired of living by faith? When you get tired of living by faith, you start living by the flesh. And you may not know this, but every person has flesh patterns. They've burned little pathways of when you get tired, when you're overcome, when you're angry, when you're hurting, when you're lonely. There are these things that you do to go soothe yourself, to distract yourself. Or the ways that you respond when you feel threatened or when you feel overwhelmed, there are ways that we respond. And these you can call flesh patterns, but they are represented here by going to Egypt. When I get tired of faith, I go to Egypt. Now, it's historical. Abraham did it. Abraham's the father of all who live by faith, but he got tired of living by faith and he went to Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? Because he wanted to feel safe. He wanted to have security. He thought living by faith was insecure and living by the flesh would make him secure. But the problem was in order to live securely in Egypt, he had to compromise. He had to deceive. He had to say, my wife is my sister. And he almost lost everything. It was an incredible disaster. Can I tell you, when you try to get a necessary need like feeling safe from your flesh, it will not make you safe. It will make you destructive to yourself and to those around you. Abraham almost lost everything on the detour. Well, his descendants kept going back to Egypt, kept wanting to go back to Egypt. Even when they were freed, the Hebrew slaves would constantly say, didn't we have onions and leeks in Egypt? They forgot all the rest but the onions. Why? Because, well, even though they were slaves, they were secure, they felt like. They knew where they stood. Eugene Peterson writes it this way, he says, what was the security of a flimsy pillar of cloud when Egypt had the pyramids? Solomon's demise began in Egypt. See, here he had the promise of God that he would have a throne, that his throne would last forever. Do you know what he did? He went to make his throne safe. And he said, if I'll marry Pharaoh's daughter, I'll have Pharaoh's protection. But that compromise, that stepping away from faith, 
began a downward spiral where, where then, in order to get safe, he had to marry the daughter of every king in every kingdom around him. He ended up with something like 700 wives and 300 concubines. I really don't know how you do that. I can barely handle one. <laughs> but it all started with I want to feel safe. I want my legacy to be safe. I want my children to be safe. So he compromised the life of faith for what he thought would be security. If you're not hearing yourself, you're not listening. You see, when you get tired of the life of faith, you're always looking to meet legitimate needs, but in illegitimate ways that cause you to compromise that cause a downward spiral. Now, these particular group of people who are in Jerusalem at this time, they fill the pool again. There's food, they think. There's safety, they think. So they follow the fall of Jerusalem with a fall in their own hearts. And they go to Egypt, and they make Jeremiah go with them. Now, when I was writing this out, I thought I'd have more than one application. I only have one. There is nothing more difficult than to live a life of biblically genuine faith. Please listen to me on this. What, what is biblical faith? Well, there is a spontaneity to faith. In other words, those of you who try to figure out every worst case scenario, that's not faith, that's fear. Those of you who try to worry yourself into the future, or are so angry with your past, that's not faith, that's fear. Angry people are not faith-filled people. Anxious people are not faith-filled people. Depressed people are not faith-filled people. I'm not trying to pick on you, but you've got to realize that you can't stay where you are and have a life of faith. Genuine faith says, I have today what I need for today. And God has what I need for tomorrow. If he's promised you a future, you don't have to make that future up. You just have to receive that future. If he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you, again, you have to believe that the unseen and the not yet are more real to you than what you're seeing and what you have. But it has to be hope-filled. I see people all the time who say this to me, you know, uh, you know, I hope for the best. They don't really. <laughs> but they go, but I prepare for the worst. And I'm like, that's what you really do. <laughs> that's not hope-filled. When you get up every morning waiting for things to happen that are going to destroy you, that's not hope-filled. I grew up in the South, and the Southerners are the worst at this. I'm not kidding you. Somebody gets happy. You will have a cousin or an aunt or a grandmother or somebody come. Don't get too happy. You know bad things are going to happen. You know as happy as you are, it's going to drop. And they say something about the shoe drop, the other shoe dropping. I don't know what that means. But it's like every time somebody smiles in the South, somebody's telling them, better stop that. Now up here, you have a completely different way of looking at it. Bad things happen and you go, it could have been worse. 
So in the south, nobody can have good things happen. And up here, bad things happen. And you guys are anticipating worse. <laughs> Not only do I have to worry about what just happened, I have to think about all the other things that could have happened. See, that's not faith, friends. That's coping mechanisms. That's not opening yourself up for joy. That's making sure you don't get disappointed. It's not faith. And all faith is virtuous. In other words, the faith that you risk will not in any way end up being a faith that harms other people. Now you're always thinking about how this will affect someone else. How is this a step of love? Because... The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. See, what happens a lot of times is God strips away everything that's not faith. He did it in Jerusalem. The worship center was the center of their faith. Their temple in Jerusalem is completely in rubble. There's nothing left of it. The rituals. See, some of us we don't realize we get very impersonal with God. We go through the rituals. And the rituals sometimes can center us and they can be secure like, okay, I went to church on Sunday, I'm going to have a good week. You know, and, and of course, getting together and doing things in a, in a regular way is important. And it, it can give meaning and richness, but if it was wiped out, would you still be a person of faith? The voices of the priest who spoke to them and fed them and calmed them, those voices are silenced. So what are you going to do now? See, there are people that would say because Jerusalem was in a rubble, because the priests were silenced, because the temple's gone, they would say, see, God is defeated. But Jeremiah said, no, God is vindicated. God told you this would happen. And see, here's what Jeremiah says. The one who told you this would happen is now telling you he will rebuild it. The same true word that said this would happen is the word that's speaking to you that it will be rebuilt. And here's what Jeremiah is saying. Set aside your fears. Stay. Rebuild. Start again. Oh, what a hard word. What a difficult word. I mean, how many of us have come to the end of something we thought would be the perfect job or the best relationship or the best time of our life and it ends and you go, what do I do now? Right. And then you realize, wait a minute, my faith was more in those things and those people and those circumstances and God stripped it away because he wants my faith to be in him alone. He doesn't want impersonal rituals or, or a building to be my faith. He wants the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit to be the place where I connect with him. And guess what? I can connect with him anywhere, anytime, all the time. But to begin again sometimes seems like too much. And so these guys decided they would go for the appeal and Egypt here, I think, is a picture of the three enemies that you and I face. The first enemy is an internal enemy. It's these old patterns. It's these old ways of soothing ourselves and distracting ourselves. And when it gets too hard, where I go? But there's always this world out there that just seems to be perfectly aligned to resource my flesh. You ever notice Satan only tempts you with what tempts you? He doesn't really throw at you the things you go, hey, that was easy. 
It's like they're all personally crafted just for you. And the world just seems to provide it so perfectly. And some of us, you see, the issue is that our flesh isn't just our flesh, but it's supercharged as an emotional, spiritual stronghold. And emotional, spiritual strongholds are not absent demonic presence. So some of us are dealing not only with unbelief, but a spirit of unbelief. Some of us are dealing not just with anger, but a spirit of anger. See, Egypt can be incredibly appealing because it's a, a place where the flesh meets the world meets the devil. Are you tracking with me? Are you quiet because you're listening? Okay. I'll keep going then. Um, see, the, the issue for many of us is the life of faith seems to be an uncertain life. Seems like there are a lot of loose ends. God, how's this going to work out? How's this all going to turn out? There often seems to be ambiguity, amb ambiguity. Think about what he told Abraham. Go to the place I'm going to show you. Thanks, God. Show me and then I'll go. Give me a GPS, please. But see, in, in, in Egypt, there's no ambiguity. Think of, just think about the aspects of, and the appeal of Egypt. Geographically, it's flat. So you don't have to cross mountains. You don't have to go up and down a mountain. You got a river that's teeming with life and economy. So you feel like you'll eat forever. You'll be able to work and make a living. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be tough. Architecturally, think about this. To live in a place where they've overcome space, built these giant pyramids, of course we must be the masters of the universe. No one can threaten us. Theologically, you don't have to worship the unseen God because in Egypt, every God is seen. They all have images. Now, they might be cats, dogs, snakes, and you know, cows, and every other thing, but you know who they are, and you can offer to them, and you can manipulate and leverage with certain gifts and all that kind of stuff. So everything theologically now seems very easy. Social certainty. You may, you may not like this, but some people like to have someone have absolute control over them. Because the reason is that when someone else is in control, you have very little responsibility. When somebody else is do, making you do everything, or if someone's doing everything for you, then you really have a whole lot less to deal with. And there are a lot of us, we don't really want to be responsible and mature. Now, Toys R Us have gone out of, out of business and are bankrupt because they always wanted to be kids, I think, is what they said. They never wanted to grow up, so I guess they didn't pay their bills. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm trying to get across to you this. All of us deal with the flesh. Add to it a world in which there's provision for the flesh. Add to it an enemy who wants to supercharge your flesh. These are the things that make living by faith very difficult. But let me tell you about the clarities of our faith. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, our faith has vast, soaring harmonies, deep, satisfying meanings, rich, textured experiences. But those clarities develop from within. They cannot be imposed from without. They cannot be hurried. The clarities of faith are organic and personal, not mechanical and institutional. Faith invades the muddle. It does not eliminate it. 
Peace develops in the midst of chaos. Harmony is achieved slowly, quietly, unobtrusively, like the effects of salt and light. Such clarities result from a courageous commitment to God, not from controlling or being controlled by others. I just want to read this one thing about Jeremiah, and then I'm going to read a concluding quote. Jeremiah's life was brilliantly supplied with such clarities, but they were always surrounded by hopeless disarray. Sometimes devout and sometimes despairing, Jeremiah doubted himself and God. But these internal agonies never seemed to have interfered with his vocation and his commitment. He argued with God, but he did not abandon him. He was clear. So this, as we come to the end of Jeremiah's life, this is how I'd like you to understand it. His life, the book itself, ends inconclusively. I don't know about you, but I always want to have a happy ending. And there's no end that's happy in this. The last scene of Jeremiah's life shows him as he had spent so much of his life preaching God's word to a contemptuous people. Yet all the skeptical question marks that had been raised over Jeremiah throughout his life, was he a true or false prophet? Was he a patriot or a traitor? Was he clear-sighted or deluded? Was he futile or effective? All of those questions are turned into affirmative exclamation marks. The truth of his preaching is vindicated. You know how we know that? We're, we're reading it today. You know why we're reading it? Because everything he prophesied came true. That's the mark of a true prophet of God. The integrity of his life is proved in Egypt, the place he doesn't want to be, with people who treat him badly. He continues determinately faithful, magnificently courageous, heartlessly rejected, a towering life terrifically lived. Will you stand with me? I, I know that what I'm about to say is rather dramatic. But you're here today because God is inviting you to a life terrifically lived. He is saying no matter what your past has been, no matter where you have been, what you've done, he will, one, redeem your pain. He will restore what the locusts have eaten. He will take even where you have been irresponsible and he will take responsibility. But none of that really makes any difference till you activate it by faith. When you begin to believe that the future he has for you is better than the future you have planned. That you believe that trusting the unseen is more real to you than manipulating the people you do see. That having had things stripped away from you, you are saying, Lord, even if everything is stripped from me, still I will hope in you. Still I will trust in you. I feel like the Spirit of the Lord is here powerfully, been here all day, to give you a future and a hope like never before. I remember when I was really young and misunderstood the Scriptures, I thought it was... You know, it was the fear of the Lord that made me repent, like being afraid of punishment, being afraid of the consequences. But I realized that if I just change because I'm afraid, I have not 
satisfied the first of all the commandments. I haven't loved him. I've just been afraid of him. And then it came so true to me as the scripture says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It's his covenantal, unconditional love, his kindness towards me. I don't love him first. He loved me. Knowing me, he loved me. And he gives me that love, and now I am responding to his love. So here's what I'd like you to, I'd like you to have an experience of, his word today, of hope, a personal hope, not just a general kind of hope, but a personal hope, a hope that his word to you, the great things he has for you, the hidden things, they're for you today. But you're going to take hold of them. So here's what I want you to do. Will you lift up your hand like you're going to grasp something? It looks a little bit like a lion's paw there or something. You're, you're lifting up your right hand right now. Well, this, is, this is a two-fisted day, so we're going to do it with both hands. But the first hand is opened up. And the, the Lord is saying to you, I have provided every certainty that you need for hope in any situation you're in. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I've given you a future. I have already laid up all the resources you need to get from here to there. I'm asking you, the Lord saying is, will you trust me? Will you believe me? Will you take hold of it? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. With your hand up, I know it might be strange, but you see, Today, he wants to activate both sides of your brain. He doesn't want it a concept. He wants it a reality stored in your memories. So with your hand up, I want you to say this. Lord, Lord. come on now. Lord, Lord. I need hope. hope. Outside of myself, outside of of my circumstances. circumstances. So I'm reaching out out. and taking hold. Of the certainties of your promises. The not yet is already a reality. I take hold of it today with conviction and assurance of the destiny you have for me. Now I want you just to squeeze that hand. Take hold of hope. You don't, it's not you producing it, it's you receiving it. It's the great things that he wants to give you. He wants to lead you into. It's the hidden things. The things that only come when you give him access. But they're for you. They are for you. Now with that one grasp, lift your left hand up. It's the joy of the Lord that gives us strength. But you see, it's not me trying to manufacture joy. I mean, I can, try, I can get some cheerfulness. And I can have some gratefulness because God has been good to me. But that's not the same as this joy. You see, I'm producing gratefulness. I'm producing thankfulness. I'm producing affection. This is me saying something exists that I can't produce. But it's for me. It's the joy that exists between the Father and the Son. And He's throwing you right in the middle of it. And He's saying, I want you to know my joy today. 
So pick your hand up, open it up, and say this with me. Lord Jesus, I believe in this joy. It's the delight of the Father for the Son, and the Son for the Father, and now the Spirit wants to give that delight to me. You delight in me. To the Father, I'm as righteous as Jesus. To the Son, I was worth your life. I complete your joy. So this day, I receive the joy of the Lord. The river of heaven is destined for me. I receive that river. I receive that joy. I declare this day, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now take hold of it. Grasp it. Squeeze it. Squeeze it. I, I'm making you do this because by doing it physically, it touches other parts of your soul. Take hold of it. Hope. Look, all this week, all this week, hope is in your right hand. All this week, hope is in your right hand and joy is in your left hand. And every time you squeeze, you'll remember. I have a hope that does not pass away. But you got to make a choice. Is it really in your hand or not? <laughs> Here's what the Bible says. If you ask anything according to the will of God, He will do it. He wants you to have hope. You're not begging Him for something. You're just believing Him for something He already gave you. You're activating. You're saying, I'm not going to live in the resources of this realm. I'm living in the resources of the heavenly realm. And in the heavenly realm, there is joy. There is certainty. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit want to share it. Lord, we seal what you're doing. I'm sorry, sometimes I don't want to let you go because I can feel the Spirit so much in this. This is the only way I got through Lisa's cancer. I love her so much, and to see her in pain was the hardest thing I've ever seen. I think sometimes my own pain was easier than watching her. There are some things that I've lost in this last year, some things that I'm losing that matter to me. They're not quite the temple in Jerusalem, but they're pretty important to me. And I, and I had to have hope, friends. I had to have certainty. And it had to develop inside because it wasn't coming from the outside. I really believe you're, you are destined for greatness. You were invited here to become great. You were invited here to live a tough life courageously and terrifically. In Jesus' name, amen.